Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, welcome to this first in what we hope will be a long series of lectures in the memory of Ralph Darendorf, who was, of course, the director of the LSE from 1974 to 1984, and was someone who did a huge amount for this school. And his time here is still remembered with great affection by many people, some of whom still on the faculty, but also many people and many alumni, as I be become very clear to me as I travel around the world and meet uh, our alumni, that uh, he was someone uh, who was held in great esteem, but also thought of very warmly by people associated with the school both then and subsequently. And of course, his connection with the school was reinforced by the fact that he wrote a history of the school for the school's 100th anniversary in uh, 1995, uh, a history which uh, is, for me, an invaluable source of uh, anecdotes at people's retirement dinners um, and uh, other, other events. Uh, so uh, he was a great servant of this place, but also a great um, Anglo-German figure outside the LSE. Of course, he did other things here uh, at St. Anthony's in Oxford and in the House of Lords, and certainly is one of the Germans who has had the most impact uh, on British life. Indeed, only perhaps Jürgen Klinsmann and Michael Ballack uh, could be said uh, to have achieved an equal degree of eminence um, in uh, an aspect of British society. Uh, so I think partly because of that, not just because of the uh, LSE connection, um, we've been delighted that the German Embassy uh, has agreed to be our partner in this series of lectures. And in a moment, uh, I shall ask Ambassador Bumgarten to say a word or two from the perspective of the German embassy. Uh, and this allows us uh, to maintain and celebrate our long and very strong connection with Germany. Uh, Germans, uh, as a group, are the third largest nationality group in the LSE. It's perhaps not surprising that there are more Americans and more mainland Chinese, but Last year, uh, there were 439 German students in the uh, LSE, uh, which is really uh, a very large uh, community in, in the school. Uh, and indeed, many of our faculty uh, are from Germany as well. So we have a very strong connection, which we get a lot of value from and which we like to maintain. Uh, as I say, I'm going to hand over just a second, uh, in just a second, to the ambassador. Uh, but let me also... Um, greatly welcome Professor Heinrich Winkler, who is going to deliver the first lecture. Uh, he has a connection with Darendorf in a number of ways. Uh, in, he was a student of Ralph Darendorf's when uh, Ralph taught at the University of uh, Tübingen, um, and has worked and written about subjects which were very close to Ralph Darendorf's own preoccupations, and tonight's subject on the greatness and limits of the West uh, undoubtedly has many echoes in it uh, of 
work that Ralph Darendorf himself did. Uh, Professor Winkler was uh, born in what we must now call Kaliningrad, um, though of course was Königsberg at the time, uh, and um, most recently has been at the University of uh, at Humboldt University in Berlin, where he still teaches and researches. So we greatly look forward to hearing your lecture. And before that, let's hear a word from Ambassador Bimgard. Ambassador. <laughs> Director, Professor Winkler, Excellencies, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, a special welcome to Lady Darndorf. Coming to LSE is always an honor and a pleasure. This place is very popular with German students, as we just heard, and to have for the first time a Darndorf lecture is certainly a very great event. For a very short time, Ralf Darndorf was a colleague of mine because he was Minister of State in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But then he left for much greater things, particularly to become a lord in the House of Lords in Britain, which is a career which is very rare in diplomatic service. <laughs> Meeting Professor Darendorf in Berlin first and then again here in London in 2008 was always a great adventure because speaking to him, discussing with him was really an intellectual challenge of first grade. He taught generations of students. He formed the sociology of the last decades. So I'm very grateful that now with this we institute a regular Darendorf lecture here at LSE. And uh, now I should continue for at least 45 minutes, but I leave this an uncompleted project and hand over to <laughs> Professor Winkler, our <laughs> guest from Berlin. <laughs> Lady Darndorf, Director Howard Davis, Ambassador Baumgarten, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to stand before you today at the London School of Economics to deliver the first annual Ralph Darndorf Memorial Lecture. Ralph Darndorf, you mentioned it, was one of my professors at the University of Tübingen, where 50 years ago I was a student. In the summer semester of 1961, Darndorf held a lecture course on the social theory of revolution, and it proved to be one of the most brilliant I could attend during my student days. Inspired by the men, I devoured his books in short order. Among them was Society and Democracy in Germany. Besides establishing Darndorf's reputation in the Federal Republic, this book would provide much inspiration for my own work on German history and its deviations from the West. Our pasts crossed again at Harvard University in the legendary year mm -hmm. of 1968. He was a visiting professor, and I was a German Kennedy Memorial Fellow. Our next meeting didn't come until the new millennium. 
In 2000, I published my two-volume work, Germany, The Long Road West, in which I cite Dahndorf extensively. Not long after the book appeared, Dahndorf contacted me and suggested we meet sometime to talk. The conversation we eventually had was long and fruitful. My lecture today is not about Ralf Dahndorf, but about an issue that was central to his work, the normative project of the West. Throughout his life, Dahndorf witnessed various manifestations of the West in Europe and in the United States. In a May 2003 lecture sponsored by the German Historical Institute in London, titled Europe and the West, Old and New Identities, he warned against seeing in the European Union a counterweight to the United States. Dahndorf was a transatlantic thinker, and even if he did not always agree about European integration or the Iraq war, say, we always converged on a fundamental point, that which holds the West together at its core is an idea that was first articulated fully in the 18th century and that was developed on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm referring, of course, to the idea of a free order built on the rule of law. My talk today is about the preconditions and consequences of the West's normative project. I would like to start with a quick sketch of the concept itself, for in both its cultural and political senses, the West has meant different things at different times. The opposition that existed in classical Greece between the Hellenic and the barbaric, the Occident, what the Greeks called Hespera or Dismae, and the Orient, what the Greeks called Anatole, grew out of experiences gathered during the Persian Wars in the first half of the 5th century BC. In the Christian region of Europe, the word Occident referred to the domain of the Western Church, which is to say the Latin Church, as opposed to the domain of the Greek Church, which is to say Byzantium. On the transatlantic front, the West was rarely thought of as a unity prior to the 20th century. Only after 1890, when North America was seen to have attained cultural and political parity with Europe, did the concept enter general circulation, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world. At that time, of course, it still had to compete with another, more dominant concept namely that of the white race. The idea of the West was both narrower and broader than the race-based notion of community. It was narrower because it excluded the Russian and the Balkan parts of Europe, which were deemed behind the times, 
but it was also broader because membership in Western civilization was not predicated on blood. For one Western country, the concept of the West was for a while a fighting word. In the First World War, Germany associated the West with France, Great Britain, and once it entered the conflict, the United States. From the viewpoint of Germany's nationalist defenders, Thomas Mann among them, these countries stood for the very values that Germany rejected, democratic majority rule and materialism. Germany, by contrast, stood for the allegedly superior values of an inward-looking culture founded on a strong state. In many minds, the battle between the German ideas of 1914 and the Western ideas of 1789 persisted even after the defeat of 1918. The most egregious moment of Germany's revolt against the political culture of the West was National Socialism. Only after the defeat of the German Reich in World War II did Germany, one part of it at least, seek to integrate itself with the West. At the height of the Historikerstreit, the 1980s dispute among German historians about the uniqueness of the Nazi genocide, Jürgen Habermas called this unreserved opening of the Federal Republic to the political culture of the West the most important intellectual achievement of post-war Germany. During the Cold War, the West became shorthand for NATO, the alliance of the two major democracies of North America with 10, later it would become 14, countries on the other side of the Atlantic, including starting in 1955, the Federal Republic of Germany. Not all the NATO countries were democracies, of course. Before 1974, Portugal was ruled by a right-wing authoritarian dictatorship, while Greece and Turkey were run by the military, at times directly, at times indirectly. Despite exceptions like these, however, NATO saw itself as a def defender of civil rights and human rights against the threat of the Soviet Union and the states of the Warsaw Pact. NATO aspired to more than a military alliance. It also wanted to build a community of values. After the epochal changes in 1989, and 1991, the concept of the West changed once more. The fall of the communist dictatorship permitted geographic and historical realities to come into focus that had been long obscured by the Cold War. Before the middle of the 20th century, few, if any, would have assigned Poland, Hungary, or the regions of Czechoslovakia to Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and East Central Europe were, and still are, the accurate terms. The term Eastern Europe was reserved for Russia, east of the Ural Mountains, for White Russia, and for large parts of the Ukraine. Historically, East 
Central Europe, the Baltic region, and the western part of the Ukraine belonged to the Occident, a region whose spiritual center was, until the Reformation, located in Rome, in contrast to Orthodox-influenced Eastern Europe. No one expresses the difference between Europe and the West as incisively as the Viennese historian Gerald Sturz. When he writes, by itself Europe is not the West. The West extends beyond Europe, but Europe also extends beyond the East. The non-European West includes the United States and Canada, as well as Australia and New Zealand, and since its founding in 1948, Israel. In Europe, things are more complicated. The question how it came to pass that only part of Europe was considered part of the West leads us back into the time that preceded the split into a Western Church and an Eastern Church. The question is not only of historical interest, it goes back to common cultural influences that once connected Europe and which continue to have an effect today. The strongest of these common influences is the Christian religion. Considering the ever-decreasing importance of the Church and Christianity in Europe, this claim is everything but obvious. A professed secularist might even see it as an attempt to question secularization itself. In reality, it is the uniqueness of secularization in the West, unparalleled in human history, that should make us want to understand its religious roots. We can speak coherently, we can only speak coherently about the Christian heritage of Europe and the West if we also take into account Christianity's Jewish heritage. And central to the Jewish heritage is monotheism, which itself predates Judaism. And central to the Jewish heritage is, in fact, monotheism, which itself predates Judaism. In the 14th century, we see the Egyptian king Amenhotep IV declare the sun deity Aten to be the one and only god. Akhenaten, the name he later gave himself, means servant of Aten. Egyptian monotheism turned out to be just an episode, but it had an enduring effect on its mosaic counterpart. The advantage of monotheism was that, unlike polytheism, it provided a theological account of a creator god and its relationship to, human, to humankind, thus marking a significant shift toward rationalization, civilization, and intellectualization. A specific feature of Jewish monotheism is the promise of messianic salvation for the elected. Early Christianity stood in the tradition of Hellenistic Judaism, where hopes were pinned not on the arrival of the national Messiah, but on a world redeemer, and with it on an historical telos and termination. Hellenism was made possible by the long journey from myth to logos in the Greek Enlightenment. One of its lasting achievements 
was an understanding of the unwritten ethical laws, the nomoi agrafoi, that stand above the written ones. The theologian Rudolf Bultmann, the founder of the demythologizing interpretation of the New Testament, described early Christianity as a syncretic phenomenon that combined Hellenism with, with Jewish and classical Greek traditions. From Stoicism came the idea of a single human community and the theory of nat natural law. From Gnosticism came the clear distinction between God and world. <laughs> the classic instance of the Christian distinction between divine and secular orders can be found in the words Jesus delivered to the Pharisees. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be th Caesar's and unto God the things which be God's. This pronouncement not only rejects theocracy, it also anticipates secularization and emancipation. The differentiation between divine and worldly rule signified both a limitation and a confirmation of the secular domain. It was a limitation because secular rule had no control over the sphere of religion. It was a confirmation because the distinction afforded an independent sphere to the secular world. Thousand years later, thousand years lay between Jesus' reply to the Pharisees and the initial separation of spiritual and worldly powers in the investiture controversy of the late 11th and early 12th centuries. In retrospect, this fundamental separation can be seen as the impetus for the separation of powers in general. The second separation of powers came with the Magna Carta in 1215, which introduced the distinction between princely powers exercised by the monarch and the estate powers exercised by nobility, clergy, and city burghers. Each separation of powers that took place in the Middle Ages was restricted to the region of the Western Church. The Eastern Church lacked the dualism between Pope and monarch, and as a result, spiritual power remained subservient to worldly power. Moreover, estates in the Western sense, estates that would have been in the position to challenge a monarch's rule, never developed. Unlike the West, the East knew neither mutual loyalty between territorial lords and feudal nobility, nor independent cities, nor a self-assured class of city burghers, nor a tradition of individual and cooperative freedom. The history of the West is not a history of uninterrupted advance toward ever greater levels of freedom. The Reformation in the 16th century did bring a massive increase of freedom by elevating individual conscience to the status of supreme and moral authority. Yet the Lutheran and Anglican state church also brought coercion and return to the religious intolerance that the humanists had fought against. In England, 
Such restrictions elicited the protest of Calvinist nonconformists. From this resistance developed a democratic movement on the other side of the Atlantic, where it soon became strong enough for American colonists of the New West to revolt against England. In the Old West, England was still the freest of Europe's major countries. There, the medieval separation of powers between princely and estate powers evolved into the modern distinction between legislative, executive, and judicial branches, a distinction whose classic expression can be found in Montesquieu's 1748 Esprit des Lois. Together with the ideas of inalienable human rights, the rule of law, and representative democracy, the separation of powers constitutes the core of the Western community of values. And it is these values on which the normative project of the West is grounded. The normative project of the West was not an invention of the Enlightenment. Its roots, like those of the Enlightenment itself, reached far back to the Middle Ages and antiquity. What is more, the normative project of the West has never been a purely European affair. Transatlantic cooperation has played an important role too. The first human rights declarations were drafted on British colonial soil in North America, the first being the Virginia Declaration of Rights signed into law on June 12, 1776. These declarations critically shaped the declarations of rights of men and of the citizen which France's National Constituent Assembly adopted on August 26, 1789. Both the Atlantic revolutions of the 18th century, the American Revolution of 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789 articulated the normative project of the West in its essential idea. This idea was the standard by which the West could measure itself and had to measure itself. Two centuries would have to pass before all Western nations committed themselves to this project. The history of the 19th and 20th centuries is largely formed by the struggle to accept or reject the ideas of 1776 and 1789. Many Western countries revolted against these ideas in the name of nationalism itself a product of Western modernity in many respects. The most radical of these revolts was Germany's, which cumulated in National Socialism. Ralph Dahrendorf brilliantly analyzed this revolt in his 1965 Society and Democracy in Germany. The countries of East Central Europe, for their part, were unable to rejoin the old Occident until after the fall of communism. As these examples show, one distinctive feature of the West's westernization is its asynchronous character. 
Another feature of the West, no less striking, is the discrepancy between idea and practice. Some of the drafters of the first Human Rights Declaration Human Rights Declarations and the American Declaration of Independence were slave owners, among them Thomas Jefferson. Had the opponents of slavery insisted on its abolition, the attempt to gain independence from British rule would have failed. Nevertheless, the promise on which the United States was founded and had revolutionary consequences, revolutionary implications. If, according to the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, then slavery was a scandal whose elimination was both historically and morally necessary. In the long battle to outlaw slave and slave trade, slave trade and slavery, principles eventually prevailed over practice. Cynical as the West's treatment of the non-Western world may have been, the West never lost its ability to criticize itself and continue to make corrections and improvements that would advance its normative project. The Afro-American slaves were not the only group to be denied their inalienable rights. The native people of North America and Australia were driven to the verge of extermination, while large segments of the white population suffered permanent discrimination. It took many years before women achieved equality and workers faced a long, sometimes violent struggle in their quest for civil rights and a dignified existence. Both women and workers appealed to the promises of 1776 and 1789. From those promises, they forged weapons in the battle against an often recalcitrant reality. On the eve of World War I, just over a dozen Western states were, broadly speaking, representative democracies. In the, U the US, Great Britain, France, the Scandinavian nations, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, Italy, Spain, Australia, and New Zealand. Their shortcomings on this score all concerned suffrage. Prior to 1914, only New Zealand in 1893 and Finland in 1906 had granted women the right to vote. Universal and equal suffrage for men was widespread by that time, but even that had not taken hold everywhere. The Netherlands didn't give equal weight to all male voters until 1917. Great Britain finally got around to it in 1918. Belgium and Luxembourg wanted, waited until 1919. In Germany, universal and equal suffrage for men had been in effect for much longer. The North German Confederation introduced in 1867 and the German Reich adopted it in 1871. But despite being progressive when it came to male suffrage, the German Reich, founded by Bismarck, was not 
a representative democracy. The Chancellor was responsible to the Kaiser, not to the Reichstag. Not until October 1918 did the transition from constitutional to parliamentary monarchy take place, and this coincidence of democracy and military defeat would severely handicap the viability of the first German democracy, the Republic of Weimar. In England, where the parliamentary system preceded the gradual introduction of universal and equal suffrage, politics developed without the radical breaks experienced by Germany. In France, things were different. At the time of the 1789 revolution, France did not have the tradition of a national parliament. Before it established the parliamentary democracy of the Third Republic in the years after 1870, France would go through numerous regime changes and tumultuous internal crises. Italy and Spain, developed into parliamentary democracies before 1914, provided one takes parliamentary accountability and universal male suffrage as the criteria for parliamentary democracy. In both countries, the political system suffered from backward social structures and widespread illiteracy. Portugal was even more behind in that regard. Even after the monarchy was abolished in 1910, only a small minority of the male population was able to vote. In another region of the old Occident, that of the Habsburg monarchy, members of the House of Deputies in the Reichstag were elected based on universal male suffrage starting in 1907. But by 1914, the Danube monarchy was governed by emergency decrees. Vienna's preferred method when opposition among the nationalities paralyzed the work of the Reichsrat. In the new Occident, on the other side of the Atlantic, there were two democracies already in existence before 1914. The United States, which was the world's largest at the time, and the British Dominion of Canada. None of the larger Latin American republics developed a level of democratic stability before 1914 that was comparable with that of the United States or Canada. Instead, the region was characterized by violent regime change, civil war, and the military-backed dictatorships of Caudillismo. In 1914, the Europeans and the American, Americans controlled most of the colonial world. By then, there were clear indications that the wide expansion had already reached its peak. Japan's victory over Imperial Russia in 1905 was a signal to the wide world and the non-wide world alike. The defeat of a great European power encouraged the national movement in the largest English colony of the time, namely India. Another unmistakable sign that colonialism was on the wane came nine years before when Ethiopian troops delivered a crushing defeat to the Italians at Adwa. Like Germany, Italy was a latecomer to nationhood and colonial power. And like Germany, though more modest in its aims than Germany, Italy was driven by the desire to have his own place in the sun. Before 1914, there were only two colonial empires that deserved the name, the British and the French. 
other European states possessed colonies, but what they possessed did not add up to an empire. The United States, founded on an anti-colonial revolution, became a colonial power in the Philippines after it captured Manila in 1898. Nevertheless, the experience of war in this on the Spanish-controlled islands was the main reason the U.S. did not seek to expand its colonial power any further. Most subsequent efforts on the part of the United States to reach beyond its national borders was limited to informal hegemony, a tactic invented by Great Britain several decades before. World War I represented one of the starkest structures in the history of the West. 65 years later, in 1979, the American historian and diplomat George F. Kennan called it the great seminal catastrophe of this century. This assessment is one that Poland the Czech Republic and other nations who owed their independence to the war would probably reject or at least want to qualify. World War I was first and foremost an internal conflict among Western nations and the severest up to that point. But it was also a conflict with non-Western powers with non-Western powers on both sides. In the camp of Western democracy stood Russia, Japan, and starting in 1917, China. In the camp of the central powers stood the Ottoman Empire. It was evident from the beginning that the war's outcome would affect not only the global balance of power, but also the future of the West's normative project. A victory of Germany and its allies would have been a defeat of the ideas of 1776 and 1789. Whether a victory of the Western powers would help those ideas, would help those ideas triumph was at that time uncertain on account of the unpredictability of Russia's political trajectory. Historians tend to speak of a long 19th century and a short 20th century. They usually begin the long 19th century in 1776 with the American Revolution or in 1789 with the French Revolution and ended in 1914 or 1917. They date the short 20th century from 1914 or 17 to the fall of the Soviet Union between 1989 and 1991. Those who employ these time frames tend to neglect the dramatic changes that occurred in the middle of the 19th century. Contrary to accepted opinion, the revolutions of 1848 and 1849 deeply changed Europe. As the late German historian Reinhard Koselleck rightly observed, these revolutions were the first and the last revolutions to envelop all of Europe. 
In them, the Old West ran up against its old eastern boundaries once again. Only one non-Western nation, an Orthodox country, Romania, took part and its involvement was brief. The 1848 Treaty of Guadeloupe Hidalgo granted the United States a new western boundary extending its territory in the southwest to the Pacific Ocean. Shortly thereafter, the discovery of rich gold and silver deposits in California, as well as Mexico and Australia, triggered a powerful surge in industrialization and globalization. The 1850s would see the triumph of positivism, materialism, and the theory of evolution. The West's idealist chapter, once predominant at least in Europe, came to a close. Also during this time, key events took place that would shape the development of Europe and America. Meriting particular mention here is the Crimean War, which started in 1855 and ended in 1856. This conflict revolutionized the European state system. It sharpened the opposition between Britain and Russia. It exploded the conservative bloc made up of Prussia, Austria, and Russia. It strengthened Prussia at the expense of Austria, and it forged and it forged the close cooperation between the Second French Empire and the Kingdom of Sardinia, Piemont. At the end of the 1850s, the unsolved problems of the revolutions of 1848 and 1849 overflowed first into Italy and then into Germany. Compounding those problems was the question of unity, which was on the agenda once again. This cluster of issues would determine European politics until Italy and Germany became nation states in the Franco-Prussian War between 1870 and 1871. On the other side of the Atlantic, as America grew and took on new states, it had to confront a fateful question, how to resolve the conflict between slave-owning and non-slave-owning states. The American Civil War from 1861 to 1865 cast its shadow in advance. Between 1850 and 1914, movements and ideologies took shape that would have a decisive effect on the 20th century. Marxism, which had spread among European workers, later split into two camps, one that sought to reach its goal through the dictatorship of the proletariat, and another that elevated the advance of social democracy to the status of a mission. Nationalism experienced a functional shift that went hand in hand with the change in the social strata who bore it. From a weapon used by the emergent bourgeoisie to fight the forces of the status quo came an instrument in the right-wing struggle against the internationalist left. Integral nationalism which emerged in France at the turn of the century, cooperated with modern, so-called modern, anti-Semitism to pave the way for fascism. The conflict between the divided left and the fascist movement was to leave its mark on the period between the world wars. 
In the colonies, by contrast, nationalism was a weapon of emancipation. It didn't experience wide-scale success until after 1945, but by 1918 it was dangerous enough to cause serious concerns for the colonial powers. In Max Weber's famous prefatory remarks to his 1920 collected essays in the sociology of religion, he identified several cultural phenomena that he claimed were found un only in the Occident and that he characterized as typically Western. Empirical-based science, rational harmonic music, legal formalism, an expert class, capitalism's unbounded desire to acquire, a separation of household and business, rational business bookkeeping, a bourgeoisie, the organization of free work and a rational socialism. The common denominator was the rationality of its economics and its way of life in general. Weber's analysis identified stages of the modernization process that Western societies formed by industry and bureaucracy had undergone and in parts were still undergoing. Curiously, he did not speak of the normative and political achievements of the West, human rights, civil rights, the separation of powers, popular sovereignty and representative democracy. For Weber, apparently, these cultural phenomena were, were no typical features of the Occident. This was a very German point of view, and it was already outdated in 1920. Today, there are good reasons to see the development of normative standards, a culture of self-criticism, and a pluralistic civil society as the centerpieces of Western history. Max Weber wrote his preface shortly after the end of World War I. This war, history's theretofore worst outbreak of national antagonisms, revolutionized the international state system more than the societies themselves. On the whole, the old European West emerged from this bloody conflict weaker, while the new American West emerged stronger. Starting in 1917, the West was challenged by the Soviet Union, which owed its existence to the war. Nazi Germany, its diametrical opposite, didn't appear until after 1933. On account of the aggression it showed both sides, Germany forced East and West into a coalition against it and its allies, Italy and Japan. After the defeat of the Axis powers in World War II, the alliance collapsed and a new East-West conflict formed that would determine Europe and the world for four and a half decades. With World War II, it demanded the end of colonization, the end, that is, of the fourth century long era of European rule 
over large parts of Asia and almost all of Africa. After 1991, when NATO lost its opponent in the Cold War, many asked what the West now stood for. After the terror attacks of September 11, 2001, most everyone understood that these attacks were directed against the West in general, not just the United States. The way the US reacted to 9-11 made some Europeans doubt whether the Western community of values still existed. Yet whatever doubts European may harbor, large parts of the non-Western world continue to see the West as a unity in particular those who hate it. After the fall of the Soviet Union, some Western observers believed it was only a matter of time before the ideas of the West took hold everywhere. It is true, certain products of the West, capitalism, industrialization, sovereign national states and legal systems, democratic majority rule, were adopted by many non-Western societies and such Westernization, or rather partial Westernization, may very well continue. Yet the West has long stopped dominating the world. Now it is just one form of life and politics among others. The nations that understand themselves as part of the West make up only a minor portion of the world's population. For all that, the West's claim that certain rights are inalienable is also a claim that they are universal. Until these rights are acknowledged universally the world over, the normative project of the West will remain unfinished. This project represents the West's greatest invention. It is that which lends its historical greatness and holds it together at the core, all contradictions notwithstanding. The best the West can do to disseminate its values is to adhere to them while keeping a critical eye on its past violations. The history of the West teaches us that without human rights, the separation of powers and the rule of law, all communities face serious risks sooner or later. Of course, people cannot be forced to accept this truth, even some Western nations were long in taking it to heart. Germany was certainly one of them. The normative project of the West was, as I stressed at the beginning, the issue that mattered most to Ralf Dahrendorf. At the talk he gave to the German Historical Institute London in 2003, he reaffirmed his deep commitment to that project. I would like to end my talk today with his words, and I quote, I remain a Westerner before I am a European. And while some of my American friends may be Americans first, no definition of this identity can ignore that its underlying values are Western. 
if one does not like the word Western, one can describe them as those of the liberal order, though they began their career as the values of the West. In any case, the time has come to reassert the values of such an order. Perhaps we need a new West, which engages in joint projects of peace and prosperity and freedom. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you very much for that, which, uh, if I may say so, was a, a marvellous exposition of echoes of Frank Ralph Darendorf while taking the, the argument off in, a, in an exciting direction, which I think couldn't be better as a way of commemorating but taking forward uh, his contribution. We do have uh, time for some questions, and Professor Winkler has kindly said that he will take them. So perhaps we could, yes, gosh, uh, upstairs, there's a host of hands already. These are uh, rather slower, the elderly people down here. But um, uh, let's take the first one. They'll take uh, these two or three up here and then uh, let you uh, take that one first. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, because throughout your lecture, you were using the term the normative project of the West. And it seemed to me as if this was a project which has been fixed over centuries and has always been the same. At least that's a little bit how, you, how, you, how it seemed to me how you were using the term. But um, just uh, reminding ourselves that the normative projects of the West have been very different and uh, doesn't it mean to us that we cannot really say it's an achievement because we don't really know uh, which normative project of the West is now the better one to, to the ones we had in the past? Thanks. There was someone else. Yes, a couple. We'll take three up there. That Yes, woman there. Hello. Um, my question is kind of similar to that but in a different, um, in a different way. Um, what makes all the um, things that you define as success uh, for the development, for the lib uh, liberal uh, thought, uh, the success of the West, but not the, not the humanity? Uh, how, how, how could you define it as a success of the West, but not the humanity in general? Because what makes it Western? Uh, I mean, as we've seen like throughout the history, uh, the people from East and West has always been interacted uh, and we had uh, enjoyed, the, enjoyed the goods and the bads of the, uh, of the, of the humanity. So what makes it Western? Uh, I, Thank I you. Just and I'll take this man with the stripy tie um, and we'll take those three and then see where we get. Thanks. In your outstanding talk, you did not quite refer to the Western project at the moment. With the um, integration of a non-democratic, theoretically non-Western China and Asia into the world, it is generally accepted there is the alienation of a growing underclass in the old West of Europe and North America. Is the self-perception of country of um, who are Western, 
compatible with the alienation, economic and political alienation of possibly the majority of the, po of the populations. Thank you. Three challenging questions to start with. <laughs> well, let me try to answer the first question first. The normative project of the West is certainly not uh, a static uh, concept, unchangeable and, and uh, once and for all formulated in the late 18th century. But I do think that everything which um, was added to the original project was in the very logic of the project. Yes, black Americans, uh, American Indians could refer to the declarations of uh, human rights from which the founding fathers excluded them. It was in the very logic and the dynamic potential of these of this very project as uh, formulated in the first declarations of uh, human rights in America and in France. It was in the very logic that uh, people uh, who were excluded uh, from it originally could refer to those great promises and uh, could uh, try to, to make them a reality. And this is what I would call the subversive, the subversive force of the Western project. It uh, developed over the decades. It uh, was open for interpretations that uh, went far beyond the horizon of the founding fathers. And this is one of the things which make this project revolutionary. Uh, women's emancipation and, and the whole fight of the working class for equal rights was a fight which could be based on the promises of 1776 and 1789. And uh, of course there are very different variations of this project now in America, Britain, continental Europe, and if we have uh, controversies between Europeans and Americans, it is very often controversies about different conclusions we and they draw from common values. Uh, in, the, in the sense of Max Weber, of course, the normative project of the West is an I I ideal type, an ideal type, and, and not uh, a reality. It is, is in fact, an unfinished project which still has to be completed, has to be fulfilled, and probably never will be completed. Uh, that's the charm, in a way, of this open and unfinished project. It, it still remains a challenge, which is in a way already my answer to the third question. Yes, we don't live in a perfect world and uh, everybody who fights for uh, the abolition of discriminations can refer to the promises of 1776 and 1789. To the second question, what makes this project Western? My answer is very simple, it's history. 
the historical preconditions are in effect uh, are in fact unique. I don't think that it is by chance that only those countries which experienced in the Middle Ages the pre-modern forms of the separation of powers achieved the modern form of this separation of powers. It obviously took a long tradition of the separation of powers in order to arrive at the conclusions which Montesquieu drew from the British experience. It was, in a way, a privilege of the nations of the old Occident that they did have this tradition. They shared common experiences of uh, emancip emancipatory processes from humanism and the Renaissance over the Reformation to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment did not start in the 18th century. It had roots in the Middle Ages. This is the time when the early controversies on, on the right interpretation of Christianity started, and you can even um, lead, trace back Rudolf Bultmann's concept of demythologizing uh, uh, de of the New Testament um, back to debates uh, in the 12th century between Abelard and um, his opponents. So it is a very long tradition which many defenders of the Enlightenment uh, tend to ignore. And it is this tradition, this typically Western tradition, which made uh, the modern forms of enlightenment uh, possible. A German historian of the interwar period, uh, Otto Hinze, coined the term of the dualistic spirit of the West, the dualistic spirit of the West. He referred to the tensions between the Pope on the one side and uh, the Emperor, the King on the other side, but also the tensions between uh, the medieval city and its uh, feudal surroundings and so on. It is in fact this dualism which uh, made pluralism and individualism possible. This is the Western cause of history, the Western trajectory, to use another generalizing term, which enabled the modern form of the Enlightenment. But let me add a remark concerning the German experience. Uh, many of you may be aware of the old debate on a so-called German Sonderweg, a particular way of uh, the German development. The seemingly paradoxical thing about Germany is that it not only belonged to the old Occident, it, it had a tremendous influence on the development of the West. Uh, the Reformation was in the theological sense a German revolution, in the political sense of the word it became an Anglo-Saxon revolution. Germany contributed uh, largely to the enlightenment of the 18th century. Think of Immanuel Kant, and I mention his name not only because I was born in Königsberg. <laughs> But Germany refused, or let me put it more precisely, 
the German elites refused to adopt the political consequences of the Enlightenment. Consequences which included popular sovereignty and representative government. It took uh, catastrophic experiences until the German elites discovered the charm and uh, the convincing power of the normative project of the West. This is another chapter, but certainly one that uh, was, was fascinating to Ralf Dahrendorf, who learned a lot from an American sociologist, Thorsten Weblen, and his analysis of Germany and uh, the Industrial Revolution. It's one of the classical texts on which uh, his famous book on um, society and democracy in Germany is based. Well, the third question I tried to give already a partial answer, but in fact alienation, to use Marx's term, will always remain a challenge to the West. And um, I, I'm not optimistic enough that I regard it as possible to overcome it once and forever, but we should at least know that this is one of the reasons why the project is an unfinished and uncompleted one. Thank you. Let's take uh, Dan. I saw one there, yes, um, sort of black sleeveless jacket, yeah, in the middle. I wanted to come back to um, Germany again, actually, picks up just from the comments you were just making and also the way you described um, the, the way that Germany integrated to the West only after the catastrophe of, um, of Nazism. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to ask you what your reading um, is of Germany in the last 10 years, um, because it strikes me that um, uh, some voices in Germany during the last decade have begun again to question um, the, um, the, the Westbindung in, in a way that wasn't the case before. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of um, Gerhard Schroeder, who, um, who I've heard speak very highly of, of your work, and in particular the, um, the Long Road West, um, uh, but at the same time um, used phrases like Deutsche Weg. Um, and I wondered if that, um, if that worried you and, and, and how you see that in the context of, um, of what's happened in Germany in the last decade. Thank you. Uh, woman down here. Yes? Thank you. I thought the oldies needed some voice. <laughs> um, thank you for that very, I thought, somewhat depressing uh, talk. Because if we've been going at it for so long, why is it still an uncompleted project? And I'll ask you as a historian to do something that historians don't like, which is to make a prediction. How long do you think it's going to take before this project changes the lives of the 1.5 billion people who live in the Muslim world? Will we ever be able to take this idea of freedom and individualism and the separation of powers into those parts of the world? Thank you. There was someone else, um, yes, a man in a blue shirt in the middle. Uh, yeah, I'd like to add on a, a depressing note, really. And um, if one looks at the um, 
very, very high plateau of achievements and aspirations. You've highlighted uh, there seem to me to be uh, two peaks which really stand out. One was your uh, claim that there has been a consistent uh, uh, juxtaposition between ideal and practice in the Western's uh, uh, normative horizon. And then secondly, there was an inherent claim to universalism in the Western project. Now, if we then add not necessarily two uh, further peaks, but two abysses, namely uh, that there is a fact of scarcity, that not all good things the West affirms can be enjoyed by all, and the enduring fact, uh, 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 well, if we even leave it at that, then I think the conclusion from all that is a rather tragic one, that the West is making claims to universality which may not be realizable everywhere. I mean, that adds uh, to, your, uh, 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 um, uh, to your notion of an uncompleted project, but it's also an inherently tragic and possibly, inevitably, hypocritical one. Thank you. They don't get any easier, the questions here, do they? <laughs> well, I welcome this judge, of course. <laughs> To the first question, well, Gerhard Schröder was rather close to Jacques Chirac when he um, opposed the war, the Anglo-American war uh, in Iraq, or the war backed by a group of Europeans and opposed by others. But Jacques Chirac was certainly a Western uh, Statesman, nobody um, tried to label him um, an, an Easterner, um, or a follower of uh, authoritarian uh, Russian ideas, but he also uh, tried uh, to come to a working relationship with Russia. No, I don't think that uh, Gerhard Schröder uh, was uh, a deviator. Uh, a traitor of the Western sake uh, when he criticized George W. Bush. I think he defended Western traditions when he opposed the war in Iraq. This is, by the way, in fact, uh, a point where I disagreed with Ralph Dahmendorf. Um, there were some, some nationalist undertones, in, not so much in Gerhard Schröder's rhetoric, but in um, the rhetoric of uh, Franz Müntefering, who probably uh, was the only one who spoke of a German way, but only for a week. And he was so heavily criticized, not only by Christian Democrats, but also by Social Democrats, that he preferred, uh, after a few days, to refrain from this uh, rather meaningless uh, notion. So it wasn't really um, an attempt to uh, separate Germany from the West. Uh, I, in the long run, I would say the opposite was true. Second question. Yes, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. Uh, Friedrich Schlegel, a German philosopher of the 19th century, made the famous remark that uh, the historian is a backward-looking prophet. Uh, he can predict the past, but not the future. And uh, to this extent, I have to 
disappoint you. And uh, I could also uh, argue uh, somewhat, uh, somehow, uh, um, making a, a play with words and, and alluding to Bertolt Brecht, es kann die Befreiung der Arbeiter nur das Werk der Arbeiter sein. My, Translation would be, es kann die Befreiung der Muslime nur das Werk der Muslime sein. The liberation of the Muslims can only be the work of the Muslims and, and, Muslims and, and not of the West. But we certainly can try in a, in a dialogue to convince them that the Western values are superior to the Sharia. But um, this is in fact a, a debate which uh, could fill more than one evening. Uh, in a way, yes, I, I can only regard the Western project as an expression of the principle of hope to cite Ernst Bloch, Prinzip Hoffnung. Um, we can't predict in the sense of uh, um, some optimists after 1989 that uh, the whole world will become Western in a few decades. I don't believe that. But take the example of uh, China, uh, to which one of the participants of the debate has just uh, referred. Uh, probably all of you have read the magnificent charter 2008 by Liu Xiaobo. I think this was a, what is a moving document, a, a, a manifesto uh, for human rights and a sign that uh, at least uh, some, I hope many, Chinese intellectuals rebel against uh, the party regime and the, the restriction of their freedom to to put it very mildly. And if the committee in Oslo, the Nobel Prize uh, committee is courageous, it will propose Liu Xiaobo tomorrow. Uh, it will proclaim Liu Xiaobo as the winner of the Nobel Prize uh, 2010. I think it, it would be a very courageous act with long-term repercussions in China. First certainly polemic ones as far as the regime is concerned, but I hope it will also have encouraging repercussions in China among those who sympathize with Liu Xiaobo. And that's one of the things the West can do in order to promote the project of the West. Yes, history can have a tragic end, but if the West should disappear one day, I hope that the normative project will survive it, that it will be discovered and reactivated by people who may feel excluded from these privileges and uh, may have been discriminated by the West. But in the long run, is there any reasonable alternative to these great promises, human rights, rule of law, checks and balances, I doubt it. We'll take one last question down here, yeah. Thank you. It's coming, it's on its way to you, the microphone is on its way, thanks. 
The other way up. <laughs> Not waiting. Professor Winkler, is, is that all right? Um, in your analysis of the structure of the normative process, you gave considerable attention, I, I think, to the rule of law. And I don't think many here would disagree with that. We now have the military leaders of the West overflying Muslim areas, killing suspects without the rule of law, without due process, without evidence, without any appeal, and of course killing their friends as well. How far do you think that is taking the normative project backwards, and indeed how fast backwards? Well, wherever the West or any Western country violates its own normative premises, um, the public has to rebel. And I hope that in all those nations which deserve the name Western, there are independent uh, judiciaries, uh, there is an, an independent uh, judicial system that uh, limits the abuse and uh, take, take the example of the United States of America. They have experienced periods of suppression time and again. After the First World War, the Red Scare, after the Second World War, the McCarthy era, um, it may be that uh, there will be a, a backlash after the Obama experience, uh, but it will not be able to destroy the Western uh, project. Uh, I hope that the forces which stand in the tradition of this project will prevail. And to this extent, I believe as Immanuel Kant that uh, a certain amount of optimism is a moral obligation for those who are interested in the realization of, of the Enlightenment. Professor Winkler, thank you so much for that. And Part of, the, um, part of the normative project of the London School of Economics is that we allow people uh, to get out of here by 8 o'clock normally um, <laughs> uh, in order to uh, help themselves to a drink or go home for something to eat. So we will stop there, although we could have taken uh, questions and comments for much longer, sure. as you can see. Um, we are very grateful to you for kicking this off. The only thing I would say is that you've set a high standard for future lecturers, and the ambassador and I will have to put our heads together to see if we can think of someone who can maintain this standard. We are absolutely delighted that you launched this series. Thanks once again to the Embassy for their collaboration, and thank you all for coming along.